This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. If you've looked at the January issue of HFM Magazine, you've probably read Rich Daly's interview with our CEO, Joe Pfeiffer, about his thoughts on the state of the industry. In today's episode, we're bringing you parts of that interview that didn't make it into the pages of HFM. And speaking of HFM, you might have noticed some changes as you flipped through the magazine this month, and I'll be talking about those today with our Director of Content Strategy, Brad Dennison. But first, let's see what Rich and Chad have to say about the latest healthcare finance news. This is Rich Daly, Senior Writer and Editor for HFMA. Hi, and this is Chad Mulvaney, a Policy Director with HFMA. Happy New Year, Rich. Hey, Happy New Year, Chad, and thank you, dear listeners, for joining us on another segment of Beyond the News. This is where we take a quick peek at the significance of recent healthcare finance news developments. And let's see. So first up was a $1.4 trillion federal government funding package, which was enacted just before the holidays. And that included a six-month delay in scheduled cuts to Medicaid dish payments. So what should healthcare finance folks know about that provision or, or anything else in this pretty massive bill, Chad? It was passed right as everybody was trying to get out of town. You know, it's sort of the traditional thing that people particularly loathe about their congressmen and senators, as many probably didn't have an opportunity to even read all of the details in it. You know, I think for providers, there are a couple of things and plans also, there are a couple of things in there that are important, you know, and kind of in the small ball category, there were a number of things in there that protected the exchanges from uh, administrative action to potentially reduce enrollment in the exchanges. So it, it protected a policy called silver loading which allows health plans to put all of the cost related to the cost sharing subsidy reductions onto silver plans. So that way it makes policies more affordable for those with incomes less than 250% of the poverty level. The flip side of it is, is it makes policies more expensive for those who aren't subsidized. You know, I think the other thing is, is there were just a number of other steps taken just to kind of stabilize the exchanges like preventing the enro- the administration from ending the practice of automatically re-enrolling in- individuals in the exchanges. You know, the, the dish cuts, as you mentioned, are certainly a, a big piece of this. And so there's been a sort of stay of the dish cuts through the 22nd. And based on everything that I'm seeing, it seems like we'll get to some type of compromise for a longer term delay. At least that's that's the rhetoric now coming out of both of the Hill and the other associations that are interested in this. And then we also had a number of taxes related to the Affordable Care Act that were eliminated. So the tax that these were intended to fund coverage expansion. So these were the excise tax or the Cadillac's tax on high cost health plans the 2.3% med device tax, and also the health insurance tax. And these raised about $373 billion in revenue over 10 years. And what to me is interesting about this is it really does show that, you know, 
Congress has the will to expand coverage and provide benefits, but they may lack the willingness to actually see to it that these things are paid for long term. And there are certainly some implications there potentially for any discussion around the creation of a public option or Medicare for all. I think the the thing that this sets up or this piece of legislation sets up is May 22nd as now a now a new D-Day date for a number of different policy extenders. The, the disproportionate share cuts for Medicaid is one of them. And then also one of the things that weren't in the bill that's worth watching is legislation around surprise billing. A number of the committees of jurisdiction right before the holidays had gotten to a point where they had language that they were comfortable with and were willing to put forward to a vote, but it was sort of upended at the last minute by another House committee coming in and offering its own very different version. So now they've basically got five months to hash out those differences and possibly bring something to the floor. You know that conceptually no one's against. However, there are a number of very influential constituencies that would prefer to see surprise bills not be addressed in the coming term before the election. So we'll, we'll have to watch that to see what happens. And of course, in another recent development, longtime entrepreneur Brad Smith was named to lead CMS's Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. Any, uh, any interesting things about the timing of that and in terms of what that office is up to? Brad's an interesting choice. He certainly is cut from the same cloth, it appears, as Adam Bowler, who was the previous head of CMMI, and certainly his background is as an entrepreneur. And he actually started up and sold a company that's focused on palliative care. So to the extent that CMMI releases new models, given his expertise, that might be something they look at, given that seems to be a passion of his and something that Certainly, if you think about improving quality and reducing the total cost of care could be something the Medicare program needs. I think one of the challenges with it is obviously anything that you do in the palliative care space could also be spun as rationing. So that's kind of the longer term view. I think shorter term, obviously, there is a proposed rule that's been hanging out at the Congression or at the Office of Management and Budget waiting for clearance that would tweak or possibly expand the CJR program, the Comprehensive Care for Joint Replacements, which is Medicare's voluntary slash mandatory hip and knee bundle payment program. You know, I would imagine that with the new CMMI head in seat, it's more likely that we're going to see that program expanded or that that rule released. Great. Well, thank you for those insights, Jed, and appreciate the uh, update. And again, Happy New Year to you and to all our listeners. Happy New Year to you too, Rich. And also keep up with the latest news developments in healthcare finance policy and practice by checking out our daily news site. And that can be found at hfma.org forward slash news. Is your organization a high performer in revenue cycle? Earn the recognition you deserve with a MAP Award from HFMA. My name's Christy Pahanage. I'm the Associate Vice President of Revenue Management Operations at Geisinger. We pride ourselves on the MAP Award. Having received it 12 times, Geisinger takes a lot of pride in our results. Our team is very dedicated to the metrics, looking at what's getting measured and making sure that we're able to deliver results for the organization. Find out more about HFMA's MAP Award by visiting hfma.org slash MAP Award.
Over the last year, we at HFMA have made some pretty big changes in the way we develop content across the board, but particularly with our flagship publication, HFM. Here to talk with me about some of the changes we've been making is my boss and our director of content strategy, Brad Dennison. Welcome, Brad. Hey, Erica. I've been at HFMA almost five years now, and HFM now looks different even from when I started. Um, most of those changes have come about since you started with us, Brad, last February. Let's talk a little bit about the changes that we've made in the last year with HFM. Yeah, so I got here um, in February of 2019, and uh, we've sort of, as a as an editorial team, been rethinking how we do content. And part of that's been based on the editorial staff and, and our own thoughts about how we do content. But in large part, it's been listening to our members and gathering feedback and also just sort of understanding that how people read today is different than it was 10 years ago and 20 years ago. And so we've really been focused this past year on just shorter, quicker hit articles, better visual presentation so people can find what they're looking for quickly, and then getting more narrowly focused. And before we write word one of anything, it's really, are we helping somebody with this? And we've added some new content too. So when you talk about a publication that goes back to the 1940s, one of the things I like to do before recontenting of a publication or a redesign of a publication is to go back in its history and see things that they've done in the past that you can take cues from today. And one of the things that was really apparent to me is that chapter news was a big part of the publication at one time. And so that had really uh, not been part of the magazine for a while. And it's something that we've brought back in the past year among some other features and columns. One opportunity that I've had for the first time ever at HFMA is that I got my first byline in HFM last year when I wrote a cover story. Um, we've been doing some different types of cover stories. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me uh, about the magazine before, too, is the, the covers were beautiful, but they were very stock art oriented covers to go along with the theme. And, and I think that was a fine thing to do. But I, I really wanted to get faces on the cover. I wanted this to feel like a business publication that you wouldn't bat an eye at if you saw it next to Forbes on the newsstand. And so uh, back in June, we started to put individuals on the cover. We started writing cover stories. We started to do cover stories that were more trend oriented. Those have gotten a lot of feedback. And actually, as we as those stories move to digital, they get incredible amount of traction for us. But I think we're all really proud of putting faces on the cover of the magazine. And that's that's been a great addition. It's not just the content of HFM that's changing, though. It is also the look of it. So can you talk a little bit about the redesign? feels a whole lot different, and it really augments content that's in a different place than it was a year ago. You know, I think what readers will notice about this is that it is literally easier to read. The typography that we've chosen is easier to read. The body type in particular is bolder and larger and, and easier to read. There's a lot more navigation throughout the publication, so you know where you are. That's a, a problem with magazines that are 72 pages long is uh, getting sort of oriented to where you are. We have a a better index, but just a lot more signposts throughout to understand where you are and how to get to the content that you want more quickly. And overall, I'd say it's just a more attractive presentation. There's a, a lot more photos and graphics and, and breakouts and a, a lot of material that I think will help people grasp the points of articles quickly and digest them. 
certainly been an exciting year here at HFMA to be on the content team. And I'm personally looking forward to seeing where the next year takes us. Um, Thanks again, Brad, for joining us today. Thanks, Erica. Do more than keep up. Connect with over 3,800 healthcare finance thought leaders who will help you stay ahead. Join us for the HFMA Annual Conference. You'll be inspired by a fresh look at why it's more important than ever for your organization to be purposeful and value-driven. This year's HFMA Annual will be hosted in San Antonio from June 28th through July 1st. Learn more at annual.hfma.org. Once again, this is Rich Daly, a writer and editor here at HFMA. I recently sat down with Joe Pfeiffer, CEO of HFMA, and a former health system CFO to get his read on the financial outlook for the industry. It was an extensive interview that was also featured in the January issue of HFM Magazine. But I thought I would share a few quick audio excerpts here, including some issues that Joe addressed and we didn't have room to include in the print version. Among those audio clips, Joe Pfeiffer here addresses the 2020 policy outlook for healthcare, as well as where he sees the industry going over the longer term. And finally, what the significance of increasing financial risk will have on providers. Just as a playsetter, we're on the verge of a new decade with a lot of potential changes looming for healthcare. And the first thing we wanted to check was uh, if you see any disconnects between the industry, its leaders, outlooks and how the outside is viewing them and what are the the mindset challenges as well you know there are disconnects all over the place in healthcare and probably too many to mention but first of all we probably should think about why why are there so many disconnects and at the risk of oversimplifying things maybe three three components as to why one you know we have a fragmented system you know the the provider side of course is fragmented when you're seeking care, oftentimes you have to seek that care from multiple different entities. So the provider side is uh, fragmented. The payer side is fragmented. And just very simply speaking, in terms of that, roughly speaking, about half a, a typical um, organization's revenues would come from governmental sources, Medicare, Medicaid, and the other half from private sources, that being largely from employer-based insurance. And so, you know, that fragmentation is part of it. So those two factors are significant. The The second one is the industry being under pressure and therefore under scrutiny uh, on the economic side. And, and that adds to this. And then the third one, just the size of the industry, the fact it's one fifth of the economy. I think when you combine all of those things, it adds up to a pretty explosive environment and it leads to all kinds of disconnects. The other thing was to look for a second the future and to check with you on where you see healthcare going over 2020 and the coming decade. What do you think will actually happen as far as you what as far as you can tell? You know, I think I feel better about a longer term prediction than I do just in the next, you know, in 2020 or in the next year. I think that what what we're looking at in 2020, you know, there's just there's a, so much uncertainty. So I'll I'll give you some some of my thoughts, um, but I'll give you a caveat that this could, even my own, in my own head, what my what I think might happen in 2020 could change it in, in a moment's notice. But here's what I think: I think the Dems, the Democrats, will win the White House and will keep the House. 
I think the Republicans will keep the Senate. And so if you think about that environment, even if the Dems won, the Democrats won the Senate, I don't think that they would be enough to avoid a filibuster environment. So so in my scenario, or even if the, the Democrats won the Senate, th- th- there's there's not an environment that we would have big sweeping changes in health care. In fact, I, you know, you could make that argument almost no matter who wins in the White House if we have a, a split in the, between the House and the Senate. That's a big statement right there because that means that no big sweeping change will continue to make gradual incremental changes in the industry. Similarly, I think movement toward value-based payment will remain at a snail's pace for all the rhetoric about value-based payment, that the change, the actual um, movement of, of what percentage of a health system's revenues are now at significant risk really is moving at a snail's pace. And I think that will continue to be the case. There'll be a few more deals getting done. Congress will pass some legislation, perhaps surprise bills, and perhaps the drug pricing thing will pop back up. Same with new regs. Um, Maybe that'll be handled through um, regulation versus legislation. But at the end of the day, 2020 uh, will be relatively politically stagnant. And there'll be a few market statements made, but um, largely a similar environment than what we've been in the last uh, couple of years, I think. I think we're going to end up on a long-term basis with Medicare Advantage for all. We might call it something else. Uh, in fact, we might have to just to get it away from the stigma of, of um, you know, people attached to terms today. Uh, but I think we're going to end up with a Medicare Advantage for all environment. There's a couple of reasons why and a couple maybe benefits that would happen with that. One, and I think this would make it both equally attractive if the pain were high enough or it would make it um, equally uh, dissatisfactory uh, if the pain is not high enough. There's elements that would keep the left happy. You get universal coverage. There are elements that would keep um, the right happy, and that would be market forces uh, so that it's not a one-size-fits-all it would provide for choice for all citizens. So, you know, in a given market, you could choose between, you know, multiple different uh, health plans that would be offering a Medicare Advantage type uh, system. In other words, there's, it's not a one size fits all that would apply to, you know, all 50 states and, and um, every, you know, every different culture and every different community uh, in our country. And I think the economics could work out. Uh, so that's that's my longer term projection. The other thing we wanted to check on next was, what do you think it'll take for hospitals to actually garner the majority of their income from risk-bearing value-based payment models? I'm not convinced that we'll ever get to that point where a majority of the revenues will come from risk-bearing value-based models. Now, that might sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth because I've talked a lot about value-based payment. and And I believe that a substantial change in the payment model is necessary to change how, where, and why we provide services. But I'm not convinced that we'll get to the point of a majority. So I guess maybe the real question is, what will it take for the industry to sustain cost increases that are less than or equal to CPI so that we don't continue to gobble up higher and higher portion of our GDP? And I do believe that a substantial change in the payment model is necessary to shift the economic incentives to prevent chronic conditions, for example, or um, or just care differently. So the, the short answer to your question, what is it going to take? It's going to take a change in in payment models, and then the rest of the systems will come along with that. If the economic incentives change, 
that people change behavior. I hope you enjoyed those quick excerpts from our interview. To read more about Joe's take on steps CFOs should be looking at now, and also the outlook for Chargemaster reform, you can look at the current issue of HFM Magazine, found at www.hfma.org forward slash HFM. Until next time, this has been Rich Daly. Artificial intelligence, or AI, is a hot topic in healthcare right now, particularly in the area of revenue cycle. But in many cases, healthcare organizations are slow to adopt this technology. In this segment, sponsored by Change Healthcare, I'm talking with Jason Williams, Vice President for Revenue Assurance Analytics and AI, about why AI is worth considering. Jason, we talk a lot about AI in the healthcare industry, but one thing I've noticed in conversations I've had is that a lot of people say AI, artificial intelligence, when what they really mean is RPA, robotic process automation. Can you give us some examples of the difference and briefly define those two? Sure. We haven't done anybody any any favors by also referring to robotic process automation as intelligent automation or IA. <laughs> so I, I can understand why the confusion. I think fundamentally, though, uh, process automation, people can think about very similarly to the way that they think about what happens in an assembly line, say in a manufacturing plant. You have a process that you understand, and there's a certain point in that process that you want to automate. And so you insert the robot because you know something has to be taken from here and put there or screwed together or what have you. So RPA works very similarly. If you have a couple of systems or some data, for example, if you know that one system is bringing back hosting information from a payer, you can have the robot go and grab that from that application, pull it out, define what the fields are, and move it into somewhere else where it can actually post that, say, in your finance system. AI is fundamentally how do you get the machine to do work that requires human intelligence or thinking. So the robot isn't really thinking, it's repeating in a sense, where where you want AI to kind of mimic thought. There's examples of AI going and reading clinical text to derive what the codes are within that text, which is what you would have a skilled person doing and reading that clinical documentation. A robot doesn't read the documentation. If you tell it where to get something, it'll go there, it'll get it, and it'll do something with it. And just to kind of finish the thought on this, there are examples now where people are trying to apply AI to RPA and make it a bit smarter. RPA tends to break when the specific scenario that you fed it of what it's going to repeat and automate, if that scenario breaks, it's not smart enough to handle the exceptions. And so we're starting to see more AI layered on top of RPA to make it smarter and able to handle more of the exceptions. But just to be clear, that's AI complementing or directing the RPA. They're still separate concepts. There's been a lot of hype around AI, but anecdotally, I've been hearing that providers are slow to adopt it. There could be many reasons for this, but for those that might consider implementing AI, what impact can it make on the revenue cycle and how can it be used? So I love revenue cycle as a use for AI and not just because it's where I do my work. But it's because of the fundamental importance of revenue cycle and sustainability of providers in the healthcare system. And underlying all this is the fact that cash is still king. 
And so what we do in revenue cycle really derives that. But what I would add to that thought is data is the queen that really guides solid decision making. It's interesting. Some consultants I know have estimated that AI is potentially going to be able to produce many billions of dollars in savings for healthcare, but administrative processes and a revenue cycle are really a lot of times the best first places to apply AI. And that's because there's there's clear ROI that are associated with financial processes. And we also have large volumes of relatively good data. I mentioned claims data earlier. We found that there's a few short-term benefits. I'll call out three areas that I've heard specifically from our recent provider executive roundtables. Uh, they were around cost improvement, revenue generation, and consumer experience management. So uh, first, uh, around cost improvement, which is you know, kind of a fundamental defense to protect margins, operations efficiency is, when you boil it down, to some degree about reducing touches, which you can do somewhat through RPA as well, but reducing touches in processes. And from an AI standpoint, I call out the example of denial management. Uh, Change Healthcare created a denial propensity score recently uh, to give providers an early warning system to intervene and keep claims from ever being denied. And the cool thing about that is delivering that kind of scoring into existing software, users would basically see new content or a new warning or edit to act on alongside things that they normally would act on as a part of their daily routine to work. So there's not a new system. Uh, there's not big retraining that you have to make to give them that input to say, you know, here's the reason why that this is likely to deny. And based on the way that we've derived the likely reason codes, here's something that you want to look into to create an immediate impact and hopefully keep fewer of those things from coming back to work later on in denial management. Second, I would say around revenue generation, really the other side of managing margins is about finding money. And an example where AI can create immediate return there is in capturing discharges for reimbursable services. Uh, It's another area where we've also done some work to assist in proper charging and revenue management by predicting missing charges in patient accounts prior to them going out the door to the payer. In that way, AI can augment other charging processes. And what we've seen in in the investigation we've done is that those other processes and rule systems can leave up to 2% of claims on the table with mischarge opportunities. So uh, that's another. Third, I would say, uh, and certainly not last, is around consumer experience. Your audience knows that that revenue cycle management can cause patient satisfaction issues uh, because it's usually the longest part of the patient experience or engagement with their healthcare providers and payers. Today, AI can guide that patient financial engagement. And, uh, And as an example of that, if you take what we know about patients' ability and willingness to pay, uh, demographic information, et cetera, all those things can be used by artificial intelligence to recommend the best way to follow up with people to, one, avoid annoying them, (laughs) but, two, to better increase your yield on patient AR. Uh, What we've seen is standard processes that many providers may have of sending a certain amount of statements, a calling process, and, uh, you know, the early out collections process. It doesn't necessarily optimize to the situation that may be most effective for a given consumer or their family. One last thing I'd say about this is I've, over time, I think people can expect in some areas, AI is going to move from making recommendations like the type that I just described that require a person to kind of touch the recommendation, do something with it, to automation without a user touch. So in other words, we're going to get to a point where some of these processes, your software is just going to make the changes that AI identifies and fix the claim, send the appeal letter, et cetera. 
and I mentioned earlier um, that also applies to AI helping with RPA-enabled processes in a similar in a similar way. This segment was sponsored by Change Healthcare. Change Healthcare is a healthcare technology company that offers software, analytics, network solutions, and technology-enabled services to help create a stronger, more collaborative healthcare system. Our provider solutions help increase patient access, ensure clinically appropriate care, and manage claims and payments across the revenue cycle. For more information, visit changehealthcare.com. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. And on next week's episode, you can hear his interview with Dennis Dolan, the CFO of Mayo Clinic. We have several great events coming up this year. You can register now for the Revenue Cycle Conference in New Orleans, March 30th through April 1st, and the HFMA Annual Conference, June 28th through July 1st in San Antonio. I'll be at both events, so please come say hi. In the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch with me or anyone else on the team, you can contact us at podcast at hfma.org.